0: Welcome back to Hit Parade, a podcast of pop chart history from Slate Magazine about the hits from coast to coast. I'm Chris Melanfi, chart analyst, pop critic, and writer of Slate's Why Is This Song Number One series. On our last episode, we talked about the overlapping careers of rising 80s pop acts Cyndi Lauper, The Bangles, and Amy Mann of Till Tuesday. By 1985, Lauper had scored a string of hits off her quadruple platinum album, Till Tuesday had a huge single fueled by Mann's cinematic music video performance, and the bangles were appearing in Cindy's videos and on her tour, but still looking for a hit of their own. All of these artists now had to figure out their next moves without getting pushed around by a meddling, often sexist, music industry. Cyndi Lauper had made some interesting friends in her rise to fame. One of them accompanied her to the 1985 Grammy Awards, where she won a major prize, Best New Artist, When she went up to accept the prize, she took along a muscle-bound man named Terry Bollea, better known as Hulk Hogan.
1: And the best new artist
0: is, oh, Cindy Lauper.
2: Of course, Katrine Dominique, who starred in all the videos with me, and a little special thing.
0: That's Hulk Hogan flexing behind the podium next to Cindy. He was more than her bodyguard. In her first flush of stardom, Lauper was co-promoting the World Wrestling Federation at every turn. In her Girls Just Wanna Have Fun video, her father was played by pro wrestler Captain Lou Albano. Several more wrestlers made appearances in her "Goonies Are Good Enough" video, and when she premiered the Goonies clip on MTV, not only was Captain Lou with her, the broadcast devolved into playful WWF-style trash talk when Rowdy Roddy Piper theatrically barged in.
2: The greatest video of all time! I've never seen nothing like it, Jane. Absolutely Cindy fantastic,
1: great. Cindy Lauper. I've got to thank you, Dynamite.
2: I know. No, there's uh, nothing well, like... Hey, wait a minute. me one second. I would uh, like to say yes. That was the greatest video I ever seen till you started to sing. That wrote the whole damn you thing, You didn't have to be in it. Listen, you wanted to be in it. I, that's why you Spielberg asked Lopper asked me.
0: Lauper even played a sizable oh role in the first edition of Wrestlemania in 1985, play-acting as the manager of women's champion Wendy Richter. When Cindy got into a tussle at the side of the ring, sportscasters covered the blow-by-blow.
2: And the fabulous Moolah has got Wendy Richter by the hair. Here comes Cindy Whopper, And we got a melee on the floor, Gino. We got the managers on the floor going
0: at it. Huh? Say it with me, folks. This is what an imperial period looks like. For about two years, Cyndi Lauper could be the most flamboyantly outrageous version of herself, and the public ate it up. And they did because the hits just kept on coming, with the brief exception of Money Changes Everything, which was only a number 27 hit in the winter of 1985. Lauper strung together seven top ten hits between 1984 and 86, but the journey to those last couple of hits would test the limits of Cindy's Teflon reputation. Meanwhile, speaking of awards, Till Tuesday also received one in 1985. And it was also a Best New Artist prize. Appropriately enough, it came at the second annual MTV Video Music Awards in recognition of their captivating Voices Carry video. The
1: winner of the Best New Artist of the video
0: is Tilt Tuesday, Voices Carry. Yeah.
1: I forgot that they were talking about us for a minute. So um, I'm going to speak for the band. I guess we want to thank DJ Webster and Julie and Tony Mitchell and MTV for breaking our record. Thanks a Thank
0: you. As I said in a prior Hit Parade episode, Best New Artist is a dicey category at the Grammys or really any awards show, including the VMAs. In that it is predictive, implying that an act has many more hits to come. This would prove challenging for Amy Mann's band. By the time they won that VMA, Till Tuesday's follow up single, Looking Over My Shoulder, had already peaked at number 61. And by year's end, their third single, Love in a Vacuum, missed the Hot 100 entirely. Still, the Voices Carry album did crack the top 20, peaking at number 18 and going gold. A promising start, and Till Tuesday would spend much of 1986 recording their all-important follow-up album. Indeed, all three of our artists entered 86 hoping to avoid the sophomore jinx. Amy Mann and Cindy Lauper risked underperforming their hit debuts, in Lauper's case a blockbuster. But the Bangles' 1984 album All Over the Place had only reached number 80 on the album chart. They likely had nowhere to go but up, they hoped to capture that energy on their next album, which they would title Different Light. To the four women of the Bangles, their sound was about both the singing and the playing, 60s-style California harmonies juxtaposed with 80s garage-style Crash and Burn. Let It Go, a track written and sung by all four members for the next album, best exemplified this approach. But David Kahn, a producer who'd made his bones producing punk acts and had produced the Bangles' debut LP, he went into the second album with other ideas. At the behest of Columbia Records, David Kahn was determined to make different light the Bangles' pop breakthrough. To Kahn, the Bangles were mostly about the vocals. He recorded their harmonies beautifully but he had the group record numerous takes of their instrumental tracks to perfect them. Or he just brought in studio sidemen to replay the parts. For example, on their cover of the big star power pop classic September Girls, the vocals are all the bangles, but its 60s-style backwards guitar solo is a session musician. Khan also seemed uninterested in anything not featuring lead vocals by Susanna Hoffs, who was being pushed by the label as the Bangles' standout star. Bassist Michael Steele later said that her moody composition "Following," one of the album's best songs, was recorded by Khan in just two takes.
1: Why do you call me? Why do you- why do your eyes follow me the way you
0: do? The thing was, David Kahn and Columbia Records had reason to expect the Bangles were about to become pop stars. They went into the sessions with a foolproof song, written and demoed by the most acclaimed chart-topping megastar of the decade. Prince wrote the song Manic Monday in 1984. Like so many compositions by the prolific artist, he had multiple ideas of what to do with it. In that peak Prince year of 84, he almost gave it to his Purple Rain co-star Apollonia Cotero. While producing an album for the Protege project Apollonia 6, Prince recorded a demo of Manic Monday as a duet with Apollonia. For his typical mysterious reasons, Prince kept the song off of Apollonia's album. But then he met Susanna Hoffs. Prince had become a serious fan of the Bangles. He caught their L.A. gig at the Palace Theater, and later told Hoffs that their song, Hero Takes a Fall, was, quote, number one in my car. Really, coming from Prince, that's about as high as praise gets. But... Prince liked Hoffs in particular. It has never been confirmed that the two dated, but what he did next has been widely regarded as an act of courtship. Through a mutual connection, Prince passed Susanna Hoffs a cassette containing two unreleased songs, one of which was Manic Monday. Hoffs brought it to the band, who instantly knew the song could be a Bangles track. The result proved utterly infectious. Manic Monday was, unsurprisingly, issued as the first single from the Bangles' Different Light LP in the winter of 1986, and it became their first ever single to crack the Billboard Hot 100. At Prince's request, the writing credit on the single was the pseudonym Christopher. But that wasn't fooling anyone. The public was soon clued in that Prince wrote the song. Recording a Prince song in 1986 was, all by itself, a hit-making insurance policy. But the notoriety also didn't hurt. The fact that Susanna Hoff sang lead, the rumors about her and Prince swirling, and the song's bridge climaxing with this little Prince-penned come on.
1: on,
0: All of that combined to make Manic Monday a smash. When the song rose to number two in April of 86, the song that kept it from reaching number one was, ironically, also by Prince, his chart topping smash with the revolution, Kiss. Three of the four singles the Bangles issued from the Different Light album wound up being covers. Their follow up single was written by Jules Shear. Remember Him? I mentioned him earlier as the songwriter behind Cyndi Lauper's hit All Through the Night. I'm Ooh, I'm
1: Ooh.
0: Jewel Shear never quite made it as a recording artist. This track, Steady, co-written by Cyndi Lauper, was his only Hot 100 hit, and it peaked at number 57 in 1985. But Shear had a gift for a well-crafted melody with a poetic lyric, and he formed several bands to showcase these songs. Bangles bassist Michael Steele, in fact, briefly played with his early 80s band Jules Scheer and the Polar Bears. In 1986, the Bangles decided to try their hand at this song of his. If she knew what she wants was a little like Girls Just Want to Have Fun, originally written from a man's point of view, then transformed when women sang it. Shear's version is about a frustrated dude who can't figure out how to please his inscrutable girlfriend. But when sung by Susanna Hoffs with the bangles harmonizing...
1: What wants,
0: what wants, her, her. The song takes on new meaning. It's the musings of a couple's mutual friends who know that the couple is doomed because both parties are incapable of making the relationship work. It's sad, poignant, and beautiful. Bangles' If She Knew What She Wants reached number 29 in July 1986, Jules Shear's second-ever Top 40 hit as a songwriter. Around this time, Shear began dating another introspective songwriter, Amy Mann. Over the course of their two-year relationship, Shear would wind up having an impact on her music as well. But in 1986, Mann already had her hands full, completing Till Tuesday's second album, Welcome Home. what
1: What
0: What About Love, the lead single from Welcome Home, was a continuation of the ethereal, moody pop sound of Till Tuesday's first album, Lyrics like, living on silence, living by the book, seemed to echo the themes of Voices Carry, reminding fans of what first attracted them to Amy Mann. It returned till Tuesday to the top 40, peaking at number 26 in the fall of 86. But What About Love was not Amy Mann's first choice for a single. She felt much closer to the Welcome Home LP's second track, the folky, guitar-driven story song, Coming Up Close. Coming
1: up close. Sounds like
0: home, Amy Mann's songwriting was evolving, But Coming Up Close peaked at number 59 in early 1987. Around this time, as if trying to prove she could not be pinned down, Amy Mann took a gig singing backup for, of all things, a prog rock band. Canadian power trio Rush. Kings of album rock radio, beloved by fans of meticulous instrumental chops and readers of guitar player and modern drummer, wrote the song Time Stands Still, thinking that it might have room for a female vocalist as a counterpoint. Their first choice for that vocal was, no kidding, Cyndi Lauper, which would have been interesting. When Lauper proved unattainable, they tried the pretender's Chrissy Hind, who was also unavailable. They finally found their way to Amy Mann, who proved remarkably game. Mann not only delivered the song's titular phrase, she also showed up for Rush's music video shot by cutting-edge Polish film director Zbigniew Rybczynski. He had Mann pretend to be a camera operator, wheeling around a giant studio camera while the band played. Time's Standstill became one of Russia's biggest radio hits, peaking at number three on Billboard's Album Rock Chart in 1987. By the time Amy Mann recorded Time Stands Still with Rush, she'd already become a seasoned studio pro. A few months earlier, she'd provided another backing vocal on the long-awaited sophomore album by her labelmate, Cindy Lauper. Oh, the Far Away Nearby. A Calypso-flavored techno-pop ditty was about as unlikely a song to feature an Amy Mann vocal as a prog rock song from Rush. But it was hardly the only curio on Cyndi Lauper's second album. The LP was packed with guests, and it was a hodgepodge of material. It included covers of songs by Marvin Gaye, And of the New Orleans standard, made famous by the Dixie Cups and the Bell stars, Ico Ico. Ico, Ico, Lauper also went back to her days with Blue Angel, to a modest retro doo-wop song called Maybe He'll Know. Now possessing a bigger recording budget, Lauper remade this song with Billy Joel singing backup. It was a kind of payback to Joel, who, earlier in 86, had invited Lauper to duet with him on Code of Silence, a deep cut on his album The Bridge. These were the circles Cindy was traveling in now. But the centerpiece of the album was a song written by pop songsmiths Billy Steinberg and Tom Kelly, who, two years earlier, had scored a number one hit writing Madonna's Like a Virgin. That song showed they could be arch and clever. But the song they offered Lopper was far more earnest.
1: You with the set, Don't be discouraged I
0: It's hard to find courage. True Colors was a song of encouragement and support. Steinberg and Kelly pictured it being gospel flavored, like Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water. But Lauper heard it differently. To her, as she describes in this 60 Minutes interview, the song needed to get smaller.
2: And then I realized it had to be a a voice that whispers to you. You Don't be discouraged. A voice that's almost childlike, so that it would speak to the basic DNA, the softest, most gentle part of a human being. And then you'd hear a voice whisper to you and tell you, it's gonna be okay.
0: So Lauper recorded the song with a childlike vocal, turning off her zaniness and going meek. It was only when she worked up to the chorus that Lauper unfurled her full-blast voice, and then only briefly, before reining that big voice back in. It was a very, well, unusual song for 1986, spare and gentle, declaiming but then receding, Though she had no hand in writing it, Cindy's arrangement of True Colors defined the song and made it a standard. While singing it, Lauper was picturing a friend who had died of AIDS. This was at a very early moment in public acknowledgment of the disease and its toll on the gay community. In the decades to come, True Colors would emerge as a perennial anthem for the LGBTQ community, just as the rainbow flag was becoming a pride icon.
1: And see your true, colors
0: true Colors would be the first single from Lopper's new album of the same name. After nine weeks on the Hot 100, the song reached number one her first chart-topper since time after time in 1984. The next week, the True Colors album cracked the top ten, on its way to number four, matching the peak of She's So Unusual. For the moment, Lauper seemed to have dodged the sophomore jinx so too had her contemporaries. While True Colors was atop the Hot 100, breaking into the top 40 were the latest singles by Till Tuesday, and by The Bangles, who were now promoting their third hit from the Different Light album, and it would become their biggest hit of all. Walk Like an Egyptian, a collection of near-nonsensical lyrics and a shimmying dance beat, was written by songwriter and producer Liam Sternberg from Akron, Ohio, a contemporary of other Akron New Wave acts like Devo and The Waitresses. The Bangles plucked the demo of Egyptian out of a pile of cassettes their producer, David Kahn, gave them, and they decided to give it a whirl. Three of the four Bangles sing a verse each of the song, everyone except Debbie Peterson. And in the video, Debbie seemed to be having the most fun, shaking a tambourine and dancing up a storm. Speaking of which, there was a little dance to go with Walk Like an Egyptian, an imitation hieroglyphics pose with your hands stabbing the air sideways. It was silly, but it was easy to do, not much harder than the Macarena or the Baby Shark. It helped make the song a smash. When the video for Walk Like an Egyptian hit MTV, kids began imitating the dance, And teenagers were swooning for Susanna Hoffs, who takes the song's last verse and closes the video with a sly, sideways eye glance that stole a million teenage hearts. Walk like an Egyptian Walk
2: like an Egyptian
0: Cindy Lauper's friends the Bangles were now outcharting her. When Walk Like an Egyptian cracked the top 40 in November 86, Cyndi Lauper's True Colors was in its second and final week at number one. Seven weeks later, the Bangles were on top. Walk Like an Egyptian ruled the Hot 100 for four weeks into January 1987, and it wound up the number one song of that year. It sent the Different Light LP back up the album chart, where it reached number two and went double platinum. Two weeks after the album peaked, the Bengals were back in the top three as backup singers, supporting their pal Cindy Lauper on her True Colors follow-up, the number three hit Change of Heart. Oh,
1: wow.
0: The Bangles and Lauper continued trading off hits into the spring. The group's own follow-up to their number one hit, the harmony-laden rocker Walking Down Your Street, peaked at number 11 in April 1987. One month later, Cindy's synth-pop cover of Marvin Gaye's legendary song, What's Going On, also reached number
1: 11.
0: These respective number 11 chart peaks meant different things to each act. At this point, the bangles were ascendant. But for Cindy Lauper, What's Going On became her first single to miss the top 10 in two years. That wouldn't have been so ominous if her next single, the peppy torch song Boy Blue, didn't miss the top 40 entirely, peaking at a lowly number 71. Oh, baby, shy, Ooh, the Bangles meanwhile just went from strength to strength. Invited by producer Rick Rubin to contribute a song to the soundtrack Less Than Zero, the group recorded a fierce cover of Simon and Garfunkel's 60s hit A Hazy Shade of Winter. That reinvented the groovy folk song as Stomping Hard Rock.
1: The Brown the sky is a hazy shade
0: of winter by early 88 the bangles hazy shade of winter reached number 2 easily topping the simon and garfunkel original which had peaked in 1966 at number 13 In 1988, Amy Mann, meanwhile, was trying to write Till Tuesday's third album, while her relationship with Jules Shear was coming apart. This was made more difficult by the fact that Shear was now collaborating with Mann. He co wrote two of the album's songs, including the single Believed You Were Lucky. The third and final Till Tuesday album, Everything's Different Now, wound up a turning point for Amy Mann. Much of the album was about Sheer, her now ex-paramour. In a Romana Clef fashion later made famous by Taylor Swift, one heart-rending song was even titled J for Jewels.
1: You know I miss you,
0: album won wide acclaim, with critics noting the growth in Mann's songwriting. But Epic Records wasn't really interested in promoting Amy's soul-bearing compositions. Believed You Were Lucky, the single Mann co-wrote with her ex, was a minor hit, reaching number 95 on the Hot 100. It did make the top 40 on both the Adult Contemporary chart and Billboard's new Modern Rock chart. As for Everything's Different Now, it reached a dismal number 124 on the album chart, and unlike its two predecessors, failed to go gold. Still, there was one more encouraging turn of events on that final Till Tuesday album that would serve Amy Mann well heading into the 90s, when she performed a track from the album on NBC's Late Night with David Letterman... Accompanying her on guitar was a new band member, a 25-year-old multi-instrumentalist named John Bryan. Mann and Bryan formed a friendship and an ongoing collaboration that would shift from Boston to Los Angeles, and that would eventually reboot Amy Mann's career. The close of the 80s was a similarly scattershot time for Cindy Lauper. It took her three years to follow up the True Colors album, which went double platinum, solid but less than half the sales of She's So Unusual. In the interim, Lauper did a favor for her friend Pee Wee Herman, recording the theme to his Saturday morning kids show Pee Wee's Playhouse. And Cindy tried acting, appearing in a flop 1988 film with Jeff Goldblum. Yes, Jeff Goldblum. Called Vibes. Lauper was fairly charming in the role, but the movie earned savage reviews.
1: Bingo swedling. What's he doing here?
2: Remember what Harry said? Nobody's supposed to know why we're here.
0: What if he asks?
2: Let's dance. It'll give us a chance to think
0: up a story. Moving back to the recording studio in 1989, Lauper turned back to songwriters Billy Steinberg and Tom Kelly. And, as a reminder of the eternal truism that an artist is always just one song away from a comeback, they gave her one so good it momentarily broke her hit making dry spell. I Drove All Night was a vintage torch ballad whose pre chorus and chorus were studded with big glory notes. Cindy gave the song her all, reminding pop audiences of the power of her voice. By the summer of 89, I Drove All Night had brought Lauper back into the top 10, where she peaked at number 6. The song sounded like an instant classic. How classic? The song was originally intended not for Lauper, but for this legendary vocalist, who, fortunately, managed to record it before he passed away in 1988 Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Roy Orbison. Emerson's version was unearthed posthumously in the early 90s, and it charted around the world in 1992, even cracking the top ten in the UK, where it matched the number seven peak of Cyndi Lauper's version. And even that wasn't the last go-round for this song. You thought Lauper had a big voice? In 2003, Celine Dion took on I Drove All Night. Though her version missed the top 40 on the Hot 100, Dion made the top 10 of the adult contemporary chart, and a remix reached number two on the dance chart. To this day, Cyndi Lauper's I Drove All Night does remain the highest charting pop version. But its impact on Cindy's career was questionable. Three decades later, both Roy Orbison's and Celine Dion's versions of I Drove All Night generate more streams on Spotify than Loppers. And it did little for Cindy's 1989 album A Night to Remember, which peaked at number 37 and failed to go gold, never mind platinum. The only one of our three acts to score a chart topper in the final year of the 80s was The Bangles. But their 1989 was, arguably, the saddest of all. the 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 Bangles issued their third album, Everything, in the closing weeks of 1988. It quickly generated a hit. The Rocking, Slightly Psychedelic, In Your Room, which had reached number five on both the Hot 100 and the Modern Rock chart by the start of 1989. Featuring yet another lead vocal by Susanna Hoffs, the gently risque song furthered the label's aims to position her as the group's de facto front person and sex symbol, a situation that had already been creating tension within the foursome. Hoffs had co-written the song with Billy Steinberg and Tom Kelly. Yep, those guys again. They were busy in the 80s. But it was another song Co-written by Steinberg, Kelly, and Hoffs, that proved to be the Bengals Waterloo.
2: It's meant to be done. I
1: watch you when you are sleeping. You with
2: me. Do
0: you feel- Eternal Flame, named by Susanna Hoffs after the fire burning perpetually at Elvis Presley's gravesite in Memphis? was a gentle ballad with old-school bones. It was also primarily a showcase for Hoffs, whose lead vocal was more prominent than on any prior Bangle song. In essence, Eternal Flame was to the Bengals what yesterday had been to the Beatles, a showcase for a single member disguised as a group project. The other Bangles do provide gorgeous backing vocals on the track. That's more than you can say about the Beatles who weren't Paul McCartney on Yesterday. But there's otherwise not much for the Peterson sisters and Michael Steele to do, given the song's orchestration and its Susanna spotlighting arrangement. The rest of the group bristled at even including it on the Everything album, but the label pushed for it, and then chose it as the LP's second single. By April of 89, it had gone all the way to number one. fraying, the Bangles went on tour in the summer of 1989, barely speaking to each other. They insisted that the album's third single be a showcase for someone other than Susanna Hoffs, so they chose the song Be With You, co-written and sung by drummer Debbie Peterson. When Be With You stalled at number 30 on the Hot 100, it gave the label ammunition for their long-running argument that Susanna Hoffs should be the star or go solo. At a band meeting in September, at the end of the tour, Michael Steele said she was quitting, and the label told the Peterson sisters they were no longer needed. Before 1989 was even over, The bangles were done. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases,
2: Ever think those fables and fairy tales from back in the day are just a little bit dusty? Wondery and Tinkercast are bringing you a new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Join host DJ Fuchs and his trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as they deliver remixes of fables and folktales, rhythm and rhymes, and fun spins on classics as old as time. Grab the whole family and get ready to groove, because they're putting the rap in Rapunzel and getting down with that funky duckling. Where hip-hop and fables meet, it's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to all episodes of Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
0: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. Were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Breaking up the bangles was not what Susanna Hoffs wanted. Even her former bandmates, annoyed at the labels and producers' machinations, knew that she was not scheming to push them out. Hoffs had merely been compliant with the star-making machinery. Maybe too compliant. Back in 1987, while the band was still together, Hoffs agreed to let her filmmaker mother, Tamar Simon Hoffs, direct her in a college romp called The All-Nighter, The movie's poster featured a picture of Susanna in a bikini, and let's just say the film was neither a hit nor a cinematic gem.
2: Oh, my mom's coming. She's totally neurotic about birth control. What did you get out of your four years at Pacifica? Okay, this is what I can't believe. I cannot believe I'm leaving this place without having my one earth-shattering, significant romance. In
0: 1991, with the band now in shambles, the agreeable Hoffs played the game again, releasing a solo album on Columbia Records called When You're a Boy, produced by the band's old Svengali slash nemesis David Kahn. In an interview, Hoffs later said, quote, When I didn't have Vicky and Mickey and Debbie there to fight the fight, Kahn went out-of-control pop, unquote. Hoffs' first solo single was not only slick radio pop far removed from the bangles sound, it leaned heavily on the image management the label wanted for her. Its title, My Side of the Bed. My Side of the Bed peaked at number 30 in March 1991. It would be Hoff's only solo song to crack the pop top 40. In a way, it was a pity the Bangles didn't hang on into the 90s. They not only missed the next wave of alternative music, including proto-Lilith female rock, even the pop music of the early 90s borrowed moves from the Bangles, most notably the sisterly trio Wilson Phillips, who topped the charts several times with updated 60s-style harmonies redolent of the Bangles' blend of voices. Hoffs never released another album on Columbia Records. When they rejected her follow up LP in 1994, she left the label and moved to London Records, who put out the self titled Susanna Hoffs album in 1996. It featured a cover of a song by British indie pop band The Lightning Seeds, a sound much closer to Susanna's heart.
1: do you better listen From Now on, stop what's going on. Stop what's going wrong.
0: Other former bangles joined their own 90 s projects. Bands such as Debbie Peterson's Kindred Spirit, or Michael Steele's Crash Wisdom. The most enduring of these was Vicki Peterson's team up with Susan Cowsill of family band The Cowsills. They formed the Continental Drifters, which lasted roughly a decade and issued multiple well received albums. Yeah. for Cyndi Lauper, she took four years to come back with a new album, 1993's Hat Full of Stars. But it found her still adrift, casting about for a sound for the 90s. The first single, Who Let In the Rain, was a soulful pop song that scraped the lower reaches of the adult contemporary chart. But the album was met largely with indifference, both by the public and by her label Epic Records, and it peaked at a dismal number 112. And Again, as with the broken-up Bangles, so much of 90s rock echoed what Lauper had been doing a decade prior, whether it was the post-punk crossed-with-girlish vocals of Juliana Hatfield,
1: sister, She's the
0: She's or the alt-pop of Joan Osborne. Her 1995 smash, One of Us, was written by the Hooters' Rob Hyman, the same man who had co-written Cyndi Lauper's Time After Time. Though Lauper did try her hand at Alternative Rock, most especially the title track of her 1996 album, Sisters of Avalon.
1: Avalon, Avalon, Avalon,
0: She had far greater success in her 40s and 50s on the dance charts, where she was still welcome, especially by the gay community. A deep cut on Hat Full of Stars called That's What I Think brought Lopper back to Billboard's Club Play chart for the first time in seven years, where she reached number 14. The next year, a reboot of Lauper's very first hit, Girls Just Want to Have Fun, retitled Hey Now, Girls Just Want to Have Fun, and built around an interpolation of the 1974 Redbone hit Come and Get Your Love, made charts around the world. It went top five in England, Japan, and New Zealand, and in America, it propelled a 1994 Greatest Hits album to gold sales. The song was a mashup before the age of mashups. Lauper used her downtime between albums to take up acting again, this time to much greater acclaim. Her series of cameos on the hit NBC sitcom Mad About You as the character Marianne Lugasso won Lauper a 1995 Emmy Award for Outstanding Guest Actress in a Comedy Series. You have Marianne Lugasso. This is my wife, Jamie.
2: Hello? Oh, I like you. I mean, I don't know you from nothing, but I get senses about people and I could tell you're
0: one. But the artist who was working hardest to keep up with 90s music and experiencing the greatest frustrations was Amy Mann. Even more than Susanna Hoff's or Cindy Lauper's woes with their labels, nobody got more of a raw deal from the music industry than Mann. Amy Mann spent nearly half a decade waiting out her recording contract. She managed to get off Till Tuesday's label, Epic Records, signed with a new label. Then that label got acquired by Epic. Eventually, she landed at a new indie label, Imago Records, which did put out her solo debut album, Whatever, in 1993. The label even got its single, I Should Have Known, to number 16 on the modern rock chart. But not long after that, Imago went out of business. And Amy Mann's contract was acquired by Geffen Records, specifically the DGC label, which had famously hosted Nirvana. Mann arrived at Geffen with another modern rock hit, the number 24, That's Just What You Are, which was on the soundtrack to the TV primetime soap opera Melrose Place. Ah, the 90s. Mann included that new hit on her next album, 1995's I'm With Stupid. But Geffen, distracted by bigger bands like Weezer and Garbage, did little to promote Mann's album, despite the fact that I'm With Stupid was packed with catchy tracks like Longshot. Shot. I'm With Stupid peaked at number 82 on the album chart in 1996. That was at least an improvement over the number 127 peak of 1993's Whatever. Both albums were produced or co-produced by man's friend John Bryan, who made the songs sparkle with rich sonics and smart pop hooks. He also brought in seasoned players like his friend Michael Penn, musician brother of actor Sean Penn. Five years earlier, Michael Penn had scored a sizable pop hit with the number 13 peaking No Myth. After he played on I'm with Stupid, Michael Penn and Amy Mann became friends, then started dating. In 1997, they wed, and are still married to this day. Together, they immersed themselves in the music scene in Los Angeles, where Mann had relocated in 1995. As it happened, their friend John Bryan was the nexus of that scene holding court at L.A. Club Largo for a weekly Friday night musical residency.
1: Back in the day when they used to hunt for witches They'd to see if they loved or they would drown Before they'd burn them down to the Atlantic
0: Mann and Penn were regulars at Largo, often sitting in on stage with Brian, as were such rising L.A.-based artists as Fiona Apple and Elliott Smith. The frequent club gigs kept Amy Mann sharp, as she once again fell into record label limbo when Geffen was swept up into the 1998 Universal Polygram Merger. DGC Records was folded into Interscope Records. Mann had already recorded most of a new album, but Interscope, led by famed executive Jimmy Iovine, had little interest in releasing the album unless she recorded additional material. Frustrated, Mann penned a song, Nothing Is Good Enough, about how fed up she was with label executives telling her they didn't hear a single. One of the regular denizens of John Bryan's weekly Largo gigs was young L.A. filmmaker Paul Thomas Anderson. His 1997 movie, Boogie Nights, was a critical and commercial indie success, nominated for multiple Oscars. And Anderson had begun planning his follow-up. He wanted to use music by his new friend, Amy Mann. Indeed, Anderson later claimed that the inspiration for his 1999 film Magnolia came from the opening line in one of man's songs, Deathly.
1: Now that I've met you, would you object to never see each other again?
0: Anderson was evangelical about Mann's music, convinced it deserved wider recognition. He built Magnolia around her songs. Many were as yet unreleased, intended for Mann's commercially frozen third solo album. But the track that most inspired Anderson was not new, a forgotten ballad buried deep on the soundtrack to the 1996 film Jerry Maguire.
1: What you thought when you first began
0: it. Wise Up was a heart-rending ballad that Jerry Maguire director Cameron Crowe acquired for the soundtrack, but then didn't use in his film. That left it wide open for Paul Thomas Anderson, who centered a pivotal Magnolia scene around Wise Up, in which all the actors in his Altmanesque LA fable were filmed singing the song to themselves and reflecting on their failures in life. Anderson helped ratify Amy Mann's career as a hip L.A. artist, far removed from her days in Boston New Waivers till Tuesday. Grateful for the exposure, Mann recorded a new song, the moody Save Me, just for the Magnolia soundtrack and because it was exclusive to the film, it was eligible and got nominated for the Best Original Song Academy Award.
1: Can you save me? Come on save
0: me. performed Save Me live on the 2000 Academy Awards, Unfortunately, she didn't win the prize, losing to You'll Be In My Heart, Phil Collins's ballad from the Disney animated film Tarzan.
1: Oh, I'm so small, you seem so strong. My will hold you, keep you safe and warm.
0: To this day, Mann dryly introduces Save Me as, quote, the song that lost an Oscar to Phil Collins and his cartoon monkey love song, unquote. Emboldened by her Oscar nomination, Amy Mann finally exited the major label system, buying back her unreleased album from Interscope and launching her own label, Super Ego, to release it independently. As one song put it, Mann was, quite literally, calling it quits.
1: There's no prize, just a smaller size, so I'm wearing my shoe to it fails, then I'm calling it quits.
0: She titled the long-delayed album Bachelor Number no. 2, or The Last Remains of the Dodo. The extinct bird in the title was a sly commentary on the traditional recording industry. Bachelor Number Two contained many of Man's best ever songs, including the Beatlesque "Red Vines," an homage to her friend Paul Thomas Anderson. I Released in the spring of 2000, Bachelor No. 2 went on to sell nearly a quarter million copies. A modest success by major label standards, but a blockbuster for Amy Mann, far more profitable to her personally than an Interscope release would have been. Her next independently released album, 2002's Lost in Space, matched those sales and brought Man back to the top 40 on the album chart for the first time since her Till Tuesday debut. Lost in Space peaked at number 35.
1: Because
0: So, Hollywood had rejuvenated Amy Mann. Around the same time, the movie business did much the same for the Bangles.
1: Mrs. Willia.
0: Make me tea? In the mid-90s, Susanna Hoffs and her friend, songwriter and guitarist Matthew Sweet, formed a side project just for laughs with comedian Mike Myers a faux-British 60s band they called Ming-Ti. The project helped inspire Meyers' time-traveling British spy character Austin Powers, which led to his 1997 sleeper hit film Austin Powers' International Man of Mystery, which was directed by Hoff's filmmaker husband Jay Roach. In the film, Ming-Ti perform a shagadelic, would-be British invasion hit called BBC. BBC 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 Jay Roach then teamed with Mike Myers again in 1999 for the sequel Austin Powers' The Spy Who Shagged Me. And this time, Hoffs convinced her old friends The Bangles to reform for the soundtrack. The group recorded Get the Girl for the Powers sequel, and it was a loving throwback to their Paisley underground origins. Get the Girl Girl could have been a one-off, but now that they had reformed, the Bangles spent the next four years touring together. Which generated enough momentum for them to record a new independently released album, 2003's Doll Revolution. Named after an Elvis Costello song that they covered for the album. The rest of the tracks on Doll Revolution were penned by the four band members, some of them remakes of songs they'd recorded for their various 90s projects. In a 2003 interview, Vicki Peterson marveled at how good it felt to be working with her old band again. Quote, We would look at each other and go, but we're not suffering. Is it art? Nobody's suffering. We're all laughing and having dinner, unquote. The aughts was also when Cindy Lauper seemed to come out the other side. She not only embraced her status as an icon to the LGBTQ community, she doubled down. Well, well. Whopper went deeper into club music. Her 2008 album, Bring You to the Brink, generated two number one singles on Billboard's Club Play chart, Same Old Story and Into the Nightlife. Her first toppers on that chart since Girls Just Want to Have Fun in 1984. Between that and her perennial appearances at pride marches often to perform her hit True Colors, Cindy had deepened her bonds with a loyal fan base. And then her friend Harvey Firestein came calling. Firestein was adapting kinky boots a 2005 British film about a family shoe factory that saves its business by teaming with a drag queen to make men's fetish footwear. He was turning it into a musical. Firestein was writing the book of the musical, and he needed to recruit someone to write the music. Quote, I saw an opportunity to work with someone with a big musical range. Somebody who could write club music, along with show tunes, Firestein said. Cyndi Lauper identified with drag queens, and she was a lifelong Broadway fan, but she'd never written a musical before. Firestein guided her in the principles of writing for the stage, but he left the music up to her.
1: Is Welcome to my fantasy. We give good so take-
0: Lauper more than filled the bill. Immortalized on stage by future Tony winner Billy Porter, her Kinky Boots score won universal acclaim, drawing upon both Lopper's affinity with drag culture and her melodic skill. Lopper even released a version of one of the songs herself, scoring another top 10 club hit in 2012 with Sex in the Heel.
2: The sex is in the heel even
0: if you break it. Kinky Boots opened on Broadway in April 2013, in time for that year's Tony Awards, where the musical took six prizes, including Best Musical and Best Actor for Billy Porter, as well as Best Score, which went solely to Cyndi Lauper she became the first ever unaccompanied solo female composer to win the prize. Live on the Tony stage, Lauper was in shock and deliriously happy.
2: Okay, I know no laundry list, and I can't say I wasn't practicing in front of the shower curtain for a couple of days for this speech. Um... All right, got to thank my mom for sharing all that wonderful music. I wrecked all her Broadway musicals when I was a kid, the cast albums. That's how I learned how to sing. And I want to thank Broadway for, for welcoming me. You know, this city, it's... I understand how hard you work, and I've never been a stranger to hard work, but your, your hard work inspires me.
0: By the way... That's a Grammy, an Emmy, and a Tony for Cyndi Lauper, earned for her singing, acting, and composing, respectively. She's one Oscar away from an EGOT. In short, all of the heroines of our story today had their careers rejuvenated by another extra-musical art form—the movies for Amy Mann and the Bangles, the stage for Cyndi Lauper— They retook control of their art by looking beyond the vagaries of the major label music business, which then brought life back to their music. The Bangles continued touring right through the 2010s, their last gig to date about six months before the COVID-19 pandemic started. Now a trio, bassist Michael Steele departed the band once again in the mid-aughts, the Peterson sisters and Susanna Hoffs have reconnected with their garage rock roots. In 2013, the Bangles played a Paisley Underground reunion gig. And five years later, they joined the other Paisley bands. Rain Parade, The Dream Syndicate, and The Three O'Clock on a joint album covering each other's 60s-inspired material. I know. She's making the promotional rounds as I speak for her 2021 project, which is rather Cyndi Lauper-esque, Queens of the Summer Hotel, an album that doubles as a stage adaptation of Girl Interrupted, Susanna Kaysen's famed 1993 memoir of her time in a mental institution. If anyone can make that material musical, it's Amy Mann. She hasn't stopped exploring new vistas and always on her terms.
1: things is no one there to hear your
0: that I can see That includes her live performances. On stage, Mann ranges widely over her vast catalog, sometimes accompanied by her husband, Michael Penn, or friends like John Bryan, Ted Leo, or, in this clip, Jonathan Colton. And she will even take that first hit of hers out for a spin.
1: This song, this song I wrote a very long
0: It's the hit that didn't need a movie soundtrack or a Broadway musical to find its audience and bring the drama. It was in widescreen from the moment Amy Mann dreamed it up. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Hit Parade. Our show was written, edited, and narrated by Chris Malanfi. That's me. My producer is Asha Saluja. Asha is also my producer for our monthly Hit Parade The Bridge shows, available exclusively to Slate Plus members. In our latest Bridge episode, journalist Rachel Brodsky talks about her recent interview with the Bengals' Susanna Hoffs and about the group's legacy. To sign up for Slate Plus and hear that show and all our shows the day they drop, visit slate.com slash hitparadeplus. June Thomas is the senior managing producer and Gabriel Roth, the editorial director of Slate Podcasts. Check out their roster of shows at slate.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe to Hit Parade wherever you get your podcasts, in addition to finding it in the Slate Culture feed. If you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us while you're there. It helps other listeners find the show. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to leading the Hit Parade back your way. Until then, keep on marching on the one. I'm Chris Malanvi.
1: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
2: Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh?
1: Ah.